Hello and welcome to another summer edition of Lost in Science. We have taken a little bit of a break from breaking new science stories on the air, but we will take this opportunity to revisit some of the stories that we made during 2019. On this week's show, uh, I will be taking us through the efforts of the Soviet Union to beat the United States of America to the moon way back in uh, the 1960s and even earlier because some of their missions were quite early. And then we're going to hear from researcher Eliza Colgrave about the often debilitating uh, disease of endometriosis uh, and what research is being done into that field, why has there been so little research done in the past, and uh, what may be happening in the future of research into endometriosis. Uh, So Claire will be talking to Eliza Cosgrove later in the show, but first, uh, strap in for a trip to the moon. Okay, so the US mission to land people safely on the moon and return them to Earth was an impressive feat of science and technology, and it's rightly celebrated as one of the defining moments of the 20th century. Uh, and it's it's probably almost understandable that some people who didn't live through the era have doubts about this actually happening, because it really is quite extraordinary to land people on the moon and bring them back to Earth multiple times, which they did. Uh, But I think, at the same time, it's important to look at the historical context of when they were doing this. So, uh, this was the culmination of a space race. It was a literal race between the US and the Soviet governments that went for over a decade to see who could do the most amazing space stuff. When you say Um, a literal race, they were competing to be the first, but they weren't actually literally racing in space. They were... In space, a lot of the time at okay. the same time. So, yeah, okay. you know, um, they're, they're, you could see it as a race to, to see who could do it first. They didn't necessarily go by the same route, but they definitely had the yeah. same objectives. Um, 
So certainly the Americans did land on the moon first, but for much of the late 50s and into the 60s, Soviet launches were leading the way into space in many ways. Obviously, their Sputnik was the first uh, artificial satellite. They got the first man in space. They got the first woman in space. They got the first dog in space. Um, And almost 10 years before Neil Armstrong, uh, they landed a probe on the moon in 1959. In September 1959, as well as a bunch of other stuff before uh, the Americans got to the moon. So the Russian Lunar 2 was the first object from Earth to land on the moon ever in the history of the world that we know of. Yep. Um, and sure, it wasn't a soft landing. It got completely destroyed by oh, doing that, but yeah. it it got there. It That's tried. the important thing. Was um, it completely destroyed? Like, did it send back any signals at all? Or? I think it sent back signals as it was approaching the moon, but I don't think it survived the uh, the landing. Um, so that was in September 1959. A month later, another mission sent back first pictures of the moon's far side, which we'd never seen before because we'd never been on that side of the moon before. So the Soviets have that under their belt. Uh, Lunar 9 sent back images from the moon, the first images from the moon in 1966. And in 1968, uh, Soviet-launched turtles and other organisms became the first orbiters of the moon to return to Earth. Turtles? Turtles. They Why? Sent, they sent two turtles to see what would happen to them. Why not dogs or cats, just turtles? Probably because turtles were tough and nobody really cared about the turtles. <laughs> did, when they came back, did they name them after Renaissance artists and send them to live in the sewers? Unfortunately not, but they chopped them up to see what had happened to their oh. bodies. Um, they, they did uh, autopsies on them. Well, they killed them and then did autopsies on them. Um, what they found was that they had lost a lot of weight because they didn't put any food in there for them to eat oh while they were on their trip. Um and much like Elon Musk's space car, they strapped a dummy into the pilot seat of the Zond 5 craft, which had the turtles in it, which was to measure radiation levels. So initially, the Zond mission was intended to carry cosmonauts, but they'd had two previous failures, quite dramatic failures, of their launch systems, and they decided maybe we'll just send turtles. Uh, and they sent turtles and fruit fry, fruit fly larvae to see what the effect of cosmic radiation would be on the on the organisms um but this trip was enough for a british astronomer called lowell uh to declare that cosmonauts could be orbiting the moon within months of the zond 5 mission um then the americans looked at their data and said no you got a whole lot of things wrong. They uh, went way further away from the moon than they said they were going to go, so they they could track the orbit, and they went, well, you kind of missed the moon, and then you missed your landing point as well. So their, their Zond 5 ended up in the Indian Ocean when it was actually oh, supposed to right. land in Russia uh, or in the Soviet Union. So the Americans were not as impressed as the British astronomer yeah. was. It's still kind of an interesting achievement. When you look at the... Um Look at the stuff with the the Apollo landing. A lot has been said lately about around the uh, the computers that they had with them. Like they're obviously fairly primitive by our standards, computers. But the, you know the the early computer programming, particularly the achievements of some of the the women who programmed these computers. Um, there's obviously the movie Hidden Figures, this kind of thing. Um, when you look at those uh, Soviet missions, they're basically all automated, aren't they? Well, they're, they're, they're all mechanical. Control. Yeah, yeah, they're all very much mechanical. There's not any electronics so to speak in in these um in these craft um so by december 1968 
Americans had orbited the moon and the Russians kind of gave up on the idea of beating them with people to land on the moon. By that point, it's a bit late to be starting a, a manned... Yeah, well, they, they sort of had, but they had also been working on other uh, plans. So they were going to try and collect soil samples from the moon and get them back to Earth at the same time as Apollo 11 returned uh, from its uh, landing on the moon. Um, but their Lunar 15 craft crashed into a mountain on the moon and didn't return to Earth at all. So they pretty much lost the spotlight at that point. It was supposed to come back a day after the astronauts landed from the Apollo 11. Um, but they didn't stop trying, and in November 1970, they managed to land a remote-controlled skid-steer lunar rover on the moon and drive it around the moon. And it actually held the record for... Oh, not this one, but the one that followed it held the record for the longest distance travelled off Earth by right, a vehicle. Okay. Um, they called it the Lunacod, which is Russian for moonwalker, uh, and they drove it around. Uh, they also sent another Lunacod 2 up in 1973 that was collect samples for return to Earth. Um, they accidentally drove into a crater and filled up the top of it with dirt, uh, which blocked its solar panels, Aww. which meant it died on the moon and overheated because then it had dirt in its radiator that kept it warm at night. Um, so they cancelled their Lunacod 3, which would have been their third rover. But the designers of the first interplanetary remote rovers were not quite finished. In 1986, those designers were called to help with the Chernobyl meltdown oh. because the systems they built for their Lunacod rovers were, uh, were able to withstand high levels of radiation because they had a radioactive heating system on board. So they actually helped with the cleanup at Chernobyl, uh, even though they'd retired their their lunar program quite some time before that. So I just wanted to bring up that I think it's that pressure. You can really see that the the Soviets were trying to get to the moon, and that really adds to the narrative that it wasn't just we're doing it because we can. We're doing it. They were doing it because they had to beat these other people to the moon. Um, they probably wouldn't have progressed as quickly without that competitive yep. edge uh, and it really was a race to get there it was only months and luck in a lot of ways that uh, separated the two programs in terms of scientific advances and capabilities but it does make you wonder how much they might have been able to achieve if they'd cooperated with each other instead of competing with each other true but then you look at the fact that uh, no one's been back to the moon since um, the the Apollo program ended mm. and that the the driver was this competition and without that competition once that's gone then no one's interested yeah, yeah budget cuts I reckon probably would have uh, uh, on both sides yeah, absolutely down. yeah science the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before.
You are listening to Lost in Science, where we have been discussing the space race of the mid-20th century and how the Russians in many ways beat the US into space and in some ways to the moon. Uh, But meanwhile, back on Earth, we are going to hear from Claire, who's talking to Eliza Colgrave about her research into endometriosis and what that means for women's health. One in ten women suffer from endometriosis, but for such a common ailment, very little is known about the disease and how it affects women. But hopefully in the coming years, that will change, thanks to researchers like our guest today, Eliza Colgrave, who is completing her PhD at the Royal Women's Hospital. Eliza, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you so much for having me. So, Eliza, what is endometriosis and how does it affect women? So endometriosis is quite a common gynecological condition where tissue similar to the lining of the uterus grows outside the uterus, forming um, lesions. And this can affect women in so many variable ways. Quite commonly, you hear experiences of pain symptoms and troubles with fertility. But at the same time, you can have um, asymptomatic patients uh, who don't find out that they have the disease until they have trouble conceiving. It's, it's such a multifaceted condition, but the overarching um, commonality of the stories is that it has such a profound impact on women's lives in so many ways. And are these lesions, are they growing close to the uterus or are they growing in other places in the body? They can grow most commonly in the pelvic region, but there have been cases of uh, endometriosis growing in other parts of the body. So, for example, um, thoracic endometriosis. So would that be in the thoracic sort of like around the rib cages? Yeah, around your diaphragm, for example. I've heard a few stories of that. Basically, the theory is anywhere the bloodstream can go, endometriosis potentially could go, but we still don't completely understand that. The focus is largely on understanding um, the pelvic disease. And what do we know about why some women um, have this disease, endometriosis? We're still working that out. It's We don't even completely understand what causes the disease, but we do know that your risk for developing endometriosis is half genetic and half other factors. So it's a very complex condition and um, every w- woman um, has a, a different makeup that's contributed to her developing the disease. The most commonly supported theory for how it actually starts how the disease how the lesions start growing outside of the uterus is this theory called retrograde menstruation retrograde menstruation yes so this actually this process occurs in 90 percent of all women regardless of if they get endo so when you're having your period the lining of the uterus is what's shed and that's that's what you menstruate but this tissue can also flow back up through the fallopian tubes and out into the peritoneal cavity in, in your pelvis And for some reason, in the 10% of women that develop endometriosis, the body doesn't get rid of that tissue or the tissue has different properties that allow it to plant on on the walls and the organs and develop into a disease. So we're still working working out why that happens or how that happens and also if there are other causes of the disease because that's still not the 100% supported theory for how endometriosis develops. But there is some evidence that that is one of the ways that endometriosis Yes, yes. It's the most well-supported theory. Theory. Yeah. Wow. Now, your PhD research looks at endometriosis. How did you become interested in this area of women's health? Well, it was uh, all very selfish. I uh, (laughs) have the disease myself and 
I was um, studying biomedicine at university and deciding what to do next when I finished finished my um, degree. And I started looking at going into research because I'd really enjoyed my research projects um, throughout undergrad. And uh, lo and behold, there was a project in the booklet about endometriosis. So I went to an event and met with a supervisor and it felt like the natural next step to go and engage in this weird form of self-exploration and try and better understand this disease I had that no one seemed to understand and had no cure for me. And um, if you can allow me to ask, um, how did your disease present itself initially? Yeah, of course, nothing's off limits. I talk about this all the time, just ask my friends and family. Um, I, for as long as I can remember from my first period, had quite severe pain around the time of my period. And um, I was always told that that was a normal part of being um, a woman. It was a rite of passage. It happened to my mother and now it was my turn. But as I um, continued into my teens, the, the pain became more severe and started occurring outside of my period. And my cycle kept being very weird. I was You're supposed to have your period once a month. I was getting mine every two weeks. It was having such a heavy impact on my schooling. I was you know, skipping out on classes. And it wasn't until the point that I was nearly passing out from the pain that we recognised that maybe this wasn't normal anymore and I started to um, investigate if something was wrong. So, yeah, yeah, it was a long journey and it took me until the age of 18 to get a diagnosis, but that's um, actually quite a good, happy story. There are women that take up to 10 years or more to get a diagnosis because first they have to recognise that this is abnormal and secondly, find the right doctor to send them on the right path to diagnosis. And um, what does a path to diagnosis look like? So initially uh, you present to your GP with your symptoms uh, and if they uh, have an understanding of the symptoms of endometriosis, they will point you in the direction of a a gynaecologist who specialises in endometriosis. And then um, to officially diagnose the disease, the gynaecologist will perform a laparoscopic surgery uh, where the disease is visualised during the surgery And then the main treatment is to actually excise those lesions I mentioned and remove them. Um, And that's often followed up with uh, pain relief treatment and um, hormone-based medications like the pill to try and keep the disease and the symptoms at bay. So that sounds like quite an invasive um, diagnosis. Oh, completely, yeah. Going under the knife to just Mm. find out whether you have a disease or not. Is there any current research that is looking to make that diagnosis less invasive? A hundred percent. It's one of the main drivers of research at the moment and we're forever looking at new ways to diagnose endometriosis less invasively because that's half the reason I think that it takes so long to get diagnosed. You have to have an invasive, dangerous surgery to to get a, a diagnosis. You know, if you had a teenage girl present to you with symptoms you'd probably think, oh, maybe she's just growing into puberty over, okay, let's put her under the knife and check if she has endometriosis. So there's a massive amount of focus in research on finding a biomarker in the blood, for example. Um, And there's there's a lot of work still to be done on that because it's proving to be quite a quite a um, diverse disease, as I said. There's there's no one commonality with all these patients um, that's been discovered just yet. Extremely diverse, but also extremely common. Yes, 10% of women, maybe even more for all we know, which is insane. If you know 10 women, you know someone with endometriosis. (laughs) Now, can we talk a little bit about your PhD research? What area of endometriosis do you work on? So I'm based in the lab and I'm very lucky at the Royal Women's Hospital that we have a huge program that recruits women who come through our clinic and have an endometriosis um, diagnosis. 
So I have access to a large body of tissue, including the lesions. And that's where my project is focused on. I'm um, characterizing the, the cell types and tissue types that make up those lesions because we currently don't know a lot about what the makeup of lesions are and whether that has any correlation with symptoms um, or the patient's medical history and if that could have implications for treatment. So when you say the makeup of the lesions or the makeup of the cells, what do you mean there? So I'm, I'm looking for um, specific different cell types okay. and seeing if uh, the expression of those cell types and the, or the amount of those cell types varies between lesions based on a long list of factors. So the location of the lesion, the patient's age, her menstrual cycle stage, because since this tissue is like the lining of the uterus, not the same as, but like, there's a theory that perhaps maybe it cycles like the normal endometrium. Perhaps these lesions bleed at time of menstruation. That's quite a, a commonly suggested theory. Um, so I'm looking to, to see if I can confirm that this is the case uh, and if we, that has any clinical implications, perhaps we might discover a new therapeutic target or a new way to approach patient treatment. For example, does this patient have these symptoms? Her disease looks like this. Therefore, once we've completed surgery, we should try this hormone treatment, she should try the marina. That's the most likely treatment to keep her symptoms at bay. So what have you found so far? So far, I've confirmed that it's such a heterogeneous variable disease. And um, for everyone playing at home, that means it's very diverse. Yeah, very diverse, yep. very complicated. No two patients are the same. No two patients are the same. Even within one patient, if she has had lesions taken from multiple different locations those lesions can be quite different. Right. Which is really interesting and could, could um, uh, have significant implications for, for maybe the concept of endometriosis being a progressive disease. Have these three lesions that look like X been there for longer than these three lesions that look like Y? Oh, my goodness. And so, and so how, um, how is the research that you're doing, how do you imagine it's going to help future women with the disease? The big dream for my research findings is that it starts a long line of work that might contribute to uh, an effective way of classifying and, and stratifying the disease. Um, we, have, we have a current classification system um, that surgeons use to grade women from stage one to four. So one um, being, you know, very few lesions that don't penetrate very deeply and four is there's lesions everywhere, adhesions everywhere, you know, organs are stuck together and it's quite deep and infiltrating. So that's, that can present as part of the disease, not only sort of these lesions or like what, like an internal sore type thing, mm, mm. Um, but also adhesions. So yeah, it can involve whole organ systems. Um, sometimes when uh, we have really horrible. severe cases, they have to get other specialists involved in the surgery because it's infiltrated the bowel or another part of the body and it's beyond the scope of just one surgeon to, to deal with this. But the really interesting thing about the current staging system is that there is no correlation between the grading and the patient's symptoms. So you can have the worst pain imaginable, but only have stage one disease and vice versa, which is just baffling. And we don't understand why this is the case. So perhaps my work will reveal something more about lesions that will enable a, a more... Um, Nuanced? A, 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 sorry? Nuanced? Yeah. <laughs> Some sort of scoring system that better captures the heterogeneity of the disease, how variable it is, but also why we get this disparity with the current system. And then big picture, 
this could potentially enable more targeted treatment because at the moment, after surgery, which is the main treatment, it's kind of whatever the doctor feels like. There's no real, not necessarily um, a, a major guideline or logic to how you select follow-up treatment to, to maintain the patient's quality of life. So perhaps my work can shed more light on how we go about targeting treatment. Eliza, so for anyone out there who might want some further information about um, endometriosis, the disease, um, the effects living with it, um, support, is there somewhere that you can recommend they go? Absolutely. This is a, a, this sounds terrible, but it's a great time to have endometriosis. The awareness is increasing and so is the support. So we have um, lots of information on the Jean Hales website and the Royal Women's Hospital also have their own information resources. Jean Hales? Jean Hales, yeah. They do an incredible amount of work for the endometriosis patient community. We also have a lot of support groups that you can head to even just on social media. Um, The main ones being Endometriosis Australia and Endoactive. Um, And they are also very heavily involved in the National Action Plan for Endometriosis that the government recently rolled out. So I think those support networks are going to increase as they receive more funding, which is excellent. That's fantastic (laughs) news. That's what we need. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Now, for anyone listening who this might sound very familiar to, but they haven't been formally diagnosed, what would you what would you say to them? So I'd I'd say to, to anyone experiencing any kind of symptoms that impact your quality of life, go and see a doctor and tell them your story and advocate for a diagnosis if you think you have endometriosis and don't hesitate to get second or third opinions because we're still working on on clinical education and this we're still working on um how many doctors understand the symptoms of endometriosis so don't be afraid to get a second or third opinion and reach out to those support groups on facebook and share your story and and find support in your area because it's definitely there That's great to know. Eliza, thanks so much for joining us this week and bringing your personal stories and your science knowledge and research to this misunderstood and under-researched area of women's health. Thank you so much. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 
3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.